0: And good
1: evening. I'm looking out on the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv on day 50 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Ukraine. We'll get to today's top headlines in just a moment, but I want to take a second to step away from the news of troop movements and negotiations for more arms to, to look at the human cost of what those of us covering this war are seeing on the ground. The hideous wholesale slaughter of innocents and their loved ones left behind. Moms and dads, neighbors, friends, rescue workers who tried to save them, such as a six-year-old girl in Mariupol, the coastal town that Russia has been pummeling for seven weeks. We should warn you, these images will be disturbing. An Associated Press photographer captured the final moments of this girl's life, her mother weeping outside the ambulance, her father covered in blood at her side as an EMT desperately tried to revive her. Doctors and nurses crowding over her tiny body in the hospital, still wearing her unicorn pajamas. A doctor pumping oxygen into her lungs turned to the AP journalist and said, quote, show this to Putin, the eyes of this child and crying doctors. That girl could not be saved. Consider the countless Ukrainians killed or maimed by Russian landmines and booby traps, Ukrainian fighters unable to find them all in time, Oleg now Menko worked as a driver in the village of Hoholiv outside of Kiev, according to the New York Times. That's just about 30 miles from where I'm standing right now. He was a whiz at repairing cars when neighbors showed him an abandoned car. He opened it up to see if he could fix it. In this case, an apparent landmine in the car exploded and killed him instantly. His wife Valeria told the Times, I died with him in that moment. She found out about his death in Poland, where she had escaped with their seven-year-old son. quote, "What was left was the car with the door still open and pool of blood and a big emptiness." Think for a moment of your best friend from childhood Serhiy Lahovsky lost his friend, Igor this month in Bucha. Serhi uh, told Reuters, he believes his friend was beaten, then shot in the head by Russians and dumped unceremoniously in a stairwell. Serhii and some neighbors found shovels and they dug a shallow grave in the grass alongside the road. He said, quote, I knew him since childhood. I knew his parents, his brother, everything. We went through life together. I don't have words. Millions of Ukrainians left behind reeling from these attacks, reeling from unfathomable loss and grief, senseless, unprovoked, deaths carried out in the most terrorizing ways imaginable. And yet, so many Ukrainians refuse to surrender. They refuse to back down and leave, even as Russian forces threaten the Donbass region right now. These residents who live just west of the Donbass, they're refusing to evacuate their homes. Nine evacuation routes opened today for civilians to leave Ukrainian cities after zero were available yesterday. A senior Pentagon official says the Russian troops who left northern Ukraine are now headed south to the Donbass, preparing for a major Russian offensive. Another defense official telling CNN that the Pentagon is, quote, mindful of the clock as the U.S. scrambles to move $800 million worth of weapons, ammo, security aid into Ukraine as quickly as possible. And to the south, Ukrainian officials claim a Russian warship, the Moskva, was hit by cruise missiles fired from Ukraine. The Russians say, Sailors evacuated the ship after a fire on board. The loss of this important warship, the flagship of the Russia's Black Sea Fleet, would be a massive blow to Putin. And for those paying attention, remember when the Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island in February said, quote, Russian warship, go F yourself? Well, they were talking to the Moskva. Turning now to the looming fight in eastern Ukraine. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said today that officials do not know exactly when the Russians will begin their big push offensive in the Donbass, but it is clear Russian forces are preparing for a major battle. Joining us live to discuss retired Army Brigadier General Mark Kimmet, General Kimmet, always good to have you on. So this Russian offensive will be fought in different terrain on the open plains of southeast Ukraine, terrain that plays into russia's natural military advantages as opposed to urban areas or wooded areas in the north where ukraine's forces were successful in using drones and ambush tactics whom do you think is going to prevail well that's yet to be seen
2: because remember uh it may be russian tactics but this is ukrainian land uh, they've been fighting in this area for the last 10 years and uh it's going to be a tough fight uh one way or the other Knowing the land the way the Ukrainians do gives them an advantage. Uh, but I would tell you that given the, the long history of Russian offensive operations uh, and this new pretty cruel general,
1: I think at this point it's too too hard to handicap. And, and General, how might this potential Russian offensive unfold? Would it be yep. immediate, an immediate attack, as the French are now suggesting, Uh, Or where do you think think it will take time and and be more slow going, as Pentagon spokesman John Kirby seemed to suggest this morning?
2: Well, I I kind of agree with John Kirby right now. And the advantage that we have is we know where they're moving from and where they're moving to. Uh, You know that they're coming from this area down into this area. And that, quite frankly, is going to be fairly easy to see by our overhead platforms. So uh, not only when they conduct the attack, uh, plan to conduct the attack, how they conduct the attack. Well, I think we're going to have a pretty good uh, idea of how it will happen. And of course, we're going to pass that intelligence on to the Ukrainians.
1: So, General President Putin said this week his goal is now to take control of the, the Donbass region in the southeast of the country. What do you think he has planned for the towns and territory along the Black Sea?
2: Well, that's a very good question because if you take a look at this area down here, uh, this is what he has wanted for some period of time. He's wanted to be able to completely control all the the sea routes into Ukraine. Uh, candidly, if he owns all of that land from Odessa up to Russia, up and that part of the Donbas, he makes Ukraine a landlocked country. And that is, uh, it just completely changes the dynamic of a country like Ukraine who depends on exports of wheat and other agricultural products uh, to fill their treasury. And that gives Putin a lot of leverage that he doesn't have right now.
1: All right. Retired Army Brigadier General Mark Kimmet, thank you so much for your insights as always. Joining us live here in Kiev to discuss Republican Senator Steve Daines of Montana. He is the first U.S. senator on the ground here in Kiev, and he has just returned from a tour of Bucha, where Russians allegedly left behind mass graves of Ukrainians as well as bodies in the street. Senator, thanks so much for being here. So the top prosecutor for the International Criminal Court, he visited uh, Bucha and Borodnik uh, as well, and he says Ukraine is a crime scene. Is, do you agree?
3: I completely agree. What we saw today uh, was, was shocking, it was numbing. You know, we're parents of four children, we have three grandchildren. To see these shallow graves and to watch these investigators who are with shovels digging, sh- uh, shovel full by shovel full, extracting these bodies the bodies of women, of small children, civilians across the board. It's, it it's mind numbing, it's terrible. And uh, we were there, in fact, looking as, as they're excavating uh, these, taking these bodies out. You could see the rubble, like an, like an earthquake, it destroyed these residential uh, neighborhoods. We met with the mayor of Bucha today. He said, Senator, can I show you my home? Mm-hmm. So we followed him to his home, completely destroyed by the Russians.
1: And his, let's, you have some photographs you took of the masquerade. I do, to put yeah. those up during your trip to Bucha. And we, as always, we want to warn our viewers, uh, they're upsetting uh, to see so let's uh, what, what what tell us what you're looking at when we're looking at yeah. These so
3: this this is the site there in Bucha where they were uh, excavating and, and taking shovel by shovel by shovel uh, the the bodies out. You see the black bags that the bodies were in, and then they would open up the the bags. The stench was was horrific, and then they would take these bodies back to uh, the tents that you saw there, and they were basically doing autopsies, forensic examinations. There I'm covering my nose. I mean, yeah, the stench was terrible—the the smell of death. Uh, it's a very quiet and somber scene. It's sitting right next to a church, yeah. which just kind of adds to just the whole perspective of what we're seeing there. Yeah, the
1: savagery It really is. What um, <laughs> Vladimir Putin's out there uh, and his minions throughout the world, and and, and and you know, pro-Putin propaganda saying this is all fake. You were there. <laughs> the the truth is what was just shown
3: around the world on CNN. Yeah. And that was why it was so important to have American officials come to Ukraine, come to Kyiv. And I, was, I had dinner just minutes ago, Jake, with a, a Ukrainian military leader. And I asked him, I said, what we saw in Bucha today, what's going on like Bucha around Ukraine? Just as you said, Jake, Ukraine is one great big crime scene. Yeah. This is going on in Mariupol as we speak.
1: Yeah, at, at, a, at probably a much, much bigger scale. It, it
3: is. I mean, when hit, the history is written about what's happened here in Ukraine it's going to be a terrible, terrible story. And let's not forget, the Ukrainians sent a very strong message today as I was going through the devastation. They said, this, these war crimes will not end until this war ends. Right. This war will not end until the Ukrainians have the lethal aid they need to defeat the Russians. Well,
1: let's talk about that because uh, President Biden just approved another $800 million. It's been about $3 billion total. Um, what are your concerns about it getting here fast enough? Because obviously, logistically, it's difficult to get helicopters, et cetera, to a place from around the world.
3: Well, uh, we need to speed up the cadence at which that lethal aid is made available and then delivered to the Ukrainians. There's a couple places that are, that the lethal aid is coming in. We've got to speed that up. We also need to make sure that we're listening to the Ukrainians in terms of what they need. I met with leaders here today. They said they need heavy artillery, 155th. Mm-hmm. 155mm howitzers, that's what they need. they need. They need the heavy armor. I think they they're getting the, the
1: how- howitzers, right? The-
3: they, well, we, we've got to talk about how many they need as well. Right. But they've got to get them here quickly because, as you know, as you watch that battle map we just looked at here minutes ago, uh, the Russians are on the move. They're now down on a part of Ukraine where they have a better territorial advantage than they had when the, when the Ukrainians defeated them north of Kiev here because they had better battleground. The territory is not as friendly for the Ukrainians down south. That's why we need to accelerate this lethal aid.
1: Uh, President Biden called this genocide the other day. He said that wasn't a legal ruling. It was his opinion, but he thought it was pretty obvious. Do you agree? I'd say I what I saw
3: were it was atrocities. There are war crimes at this point. I'm not sure we need to get involved in definition. This is a terrible, terrible situation. These are war crimes. It's, it's irrefutable. These are war crimes. They need to be prosecuted. And Vladimir Putin And those who committed these crimes need to be held accountable.
1: Republican Senator Steve Daines of Montana, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate appreciate your time. So many Ukrainians, especially uh, in towns near the front lines of this war, are living in sheer terror every day. Specifically those living in or near the Donbass, where Russia is planning its next big offensive. CNN chief international correspondent Clarissa Ward uh, joins us live now. And Clarissa, you traveled to the Donbass today. How were the people there surviving?
4: That's right, Jake. Well, the situation there is absolutely awful. We were in a town called Avdivka. It is literally less than a mile from the front line, from those positions of pro-Russian separatists and Russian forces, and they have already started relentlessly bombarding these areas in anticipation of this new offensive. There's roughly 2,000 people still left in the town. The mayor is begging them to evacuate, but many of them are saying they don't have the money and they don't know how to get out. The town of Avdivka is no stranger to war. For eight years, this has been the front line of Ukraine's battle with Russian-backed separatists. People here are used to shelling, but they have never experienced anything like this. A missile can be heard overhead as an emotional man approaches us. They smashed the old part of town, he says. As we talk, the artillery intensifies.
5: Yeah. Yeah? Yeah.
4: I told him it's better to go home now because there's a lot of shelling, and he said there's more shelling where he lives. As Russia prepares a major offensive in the east, Frontline towns like Avdivka are getting pummeled. So you can hear constant bombardment. This is the bomb shelter down here, but you can see this building has already been hit. More than 40 people are now living in what used to be a clothing store. Lida and her two sons have been here for three weeks. She wants to leave, but says her boys are too scared to go outside. We're afraid to stay and afraid to go, she tells us. But it's fate, whether you run or don't run. On an apartment block, an icon of the Virgin Mary has been painted. A plea for protection, but there is no respite in the bombardment. If you look over here, you can see the remnants of some fresh strikes. Thirty-seven-year-old government worker Ratislav looks at what remains of his family home. He takes us inside to see the full scale of the destruction. It's completely destroyed. It's just
6: Not true. Nothing.
4: Mercifully, no one was at home at the time of the strike.
6: It was photo albums, my children's photographs.
4: His family has already left, but he says he plans to stay.
2: I'm afraid like anybody else.
4: Only the dead aren't afraid, he tells us. But a lot of people are still here in Avdivka, living in bomb shelters, and we need to support them. Authorities say roughly 2,000 people remain in this town. There is no water, no heat. Electricity is spotty. The local school has become a hub to gather aid and distribute it to the community. Volunteer Igor Golotov spends his days visiting the elderly and disabled. Today he is checking in on 86-year-old Lydia. Petrified and alone, he has yet to find an organization willing to come and evacuate her. When there's no electricity and it's so dark and there's shelling, she says, you can't imagine how scary it is. She tells us she recites no, prayers to get through the night. I never imagined that my end would be like this, she says. You can't even die here because there's no one to provide a burial ceremony. For Igor, it is agony not to be able to do more. I promise you, he says, I will help you to be evacuated. Oh. As we leave, Lydia is reluctant to say goodbye. It is terrifying to live through this time. To do it alone is torture. It's so nice to see real people, she says. Probably it's going to get worse. A prediction all but certain to come true, as a second Russian offensive draws near. So what Ukrainian officials are saying now, Jake, is that this appears to be a sort of three-pronged offensive from the Russian side, coming down from the north, moving up from the south, and also pushing in from the east. They are already meeting stiff resistance in the form of Ukrainian forces as they have in the north above Kiev where of course they were forced ultimately to retreat but the fear for many on the ground is because they face such resistance because they've had humiliating defeats they're going to double down use even more brutal tactics and they look to the southeastern city of Mariupol as a potential harbinger of what could be to come Jake
0: that's
1: right and they have this new uh, commanding general, the so-called butcher of Syria. Clarissa Ward reporting live for us from Dnipro. Thank you so much. Uh, incredible reporting. Coming up from here in Ukraine, CNN is on the ground in another frontline town with the fear of more Russian forces soon moving in. Plus, President Biden weighing in on reports of a senior member of his administration traveling here to Key soon. And the chances of that person being Biden himself? Stay with us. Breaking news in our worldly, the Russian warship Moskva just sank in the Black Sea. The announcement comes from the Russian Defense Ministry via the Russian news agency TASS. Now, Ukraine claims that they hit the ship with land to sea missiles. Russia says a fire caused munitions aboard to explode. Meanwhile, CNN's Ben Wiedemann has been to the easternmost town still under Ukrainian control, where he met civilians who have not only decided to stay. They volunteered for the even more risky job of braving the local roads, despite the constant threat of Russian soldiers and Russian shelling. Denise loads food in his
7: car for a delivery run. The supplies sorted by volunteers in this old warehouse were donated from around Ukraine and abroad. Denise was a musician before the war.
2: My towel is
7: broken. Severodonetsk is the city furthest east under Ukrainian government control and under constant bombardment from Russian forces nearby. The supplies Denise and other volunteers deliver are what keep this city alive. Two missiles landed outside Nadia's decrepit Soviet-era apartment building, the strain of living under the shelling, more than she can take. It's hard, she says. I can't stay in this room. I'm so afraid. I want it to be quiet and calm again. With Russian forces massing in the east, there will be no quiet there will be no calm. Sitting on a hospital bed, Ulyana recounts the night her house was hit. I was in the kitchen, and it started, she says. Her home is now in ruins. More than 20 corpses lie scattered in the hospital's morgue, wrapped in sheets and blankets, awaiting burial. On the outskirts of the city, more evidence of the toll war has taken. This is a hastily dug graveyard that was started since the war began. Just look at the dates. 7th of April, 9th of April, 3rd of April, 4th of April. It goes on and on and on. And more graves will soon be filled. And going around the city, what we saw is that almost every building was somehow damaged by what appears to be utterly random shelling in areas where there's no military uh, targets, there are just civilians, and it appears that there was extensive use, or there still is extensive use, of cluster munitions in that city. The only real rhyme or reason to this madness seems to be a desire to terrorize and demoralize the population before the onslaught, Jake.
1: Ben Wiedemann, thank you so much for that important report. Coming up, the operation happening to get supplies such as food and medicine to Ukrainians who have not left this country. Stay with us. We're back live in Kyiv for our world lead. 4.7 million refugees have fled Ukraine since Putin's war began 50 days ago, heading for neighboring countries, mostly Poland. But some residents are staying nearby to help those who stayed behind, including my next guest, Vlada Galanchi, is the president and chairwoman of the International Ukrainian Crisis Fund. She's also an advisor to the mayor of Kyiv. She joins us now from Krakow, Poland. Vlada, thanks so much for joining us. So, You're building medicine, supplies, and food. You're supplying medicine, supplies, and food to Ukrainians from the Polish border. Explain to our our audience how your operation works.
8: Well, Jake, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, It has been just a full-scale effort. Um, When this war first started, I have a very very close professional and personal connection to ukraine um professionally just because uh, over the last five years have been very active um in ukraine um in the political scene um and um and personally because i'm originally from ukraine i was born in odessa and when this war started um, I desperately wanted to go back and help. I have even a home in Kiev. Um, so what what I decided to do, um, since I could not pick up a gun and go fight to defend the country, um, I started the International Ukrainian Crisis Fund. And uh, the goal of the fund and how we've been working um, is providing humanitarian aid, which is primarily focused on food and medical supplies. Um, and we have done some evacuations, um, but at this point, the most critical need is food, and we're bringing that in um, from Poland, from Austria, from Spain, from Montenegro. Um, We have tons of donated food supplies that are coming in um, to the country and we've received um, tons of donations, but the need is so great. And um, and we have to continue this effort. But uh, currently, we have a logistics uh, network um, that's distributing nationwide. And we're very humbled that in the early stages, um, we were greatly mm-hmm. supported and endorsed mm-hmm. by a lot of the mayors in Ukraine.
1: So just to be clear, you're getting this food to places like Lviv and the western part of the country where there are a lot of internally displaced people. You're getting it to... Um, and also you're getting it to places like Mariupol or wherever you can get to here in uh, Kyiv, Kharkiv, other places where people have stayed behind?
8: Yes, in fact, um, we are really focused on getting food to critical places. So recently our team went into Bucha right after um, the occupation of the Russians, and um, they were able to feed a lot of people. We were one of the early teams that came in during this period of time, and, um, and so we go into um, very high risk areas very often. We go into smaller villages that, um, where the occupiers have just left. And, um, and we're, we're really nationwide. And um, while we do um, help leave as much as we can, our focus is really the hot zones and areas where the need is really, really critical. That's where we find people that are starving, um, that don't have, many don't have shelter, have just come out of shelters um, and, and are facing the worst of it.
1: You're also an advisor to the mayor here in Kyiv. Now that it appears Russian forces are focused on on the east and the south, what is it going to take to rebuild Kyiv and its surrounding areas? When we drove in today, it was just devastation everywhere, everywhere you looked.
8: Well, you know, first, I want to say that the mayor of Kiev, Vitali Klitschko, has um, just been incredible in the leadership that he's shown, um, not only for this, for the capital city, but for the country. But it's going to take billions and billions of dollars. Some of the rough estimates are from 240 to $540 billion. Um, I think by the time we're done with it, it's going to be trillions um, to rebuild Ukraine. Um, but there could not be a better team to rebuild the country, and, um, and the strong leadership is Really being shown in the capital.
1: So, you've been getting updates from your organization's director who was recently in Bucha, as you noted, the site of those horrifying images dead bodies lying in the streets, buildings totally destroyed, especially in Borodyanka, which is nearby. What resources do, do people in those areas need right now?
8: Um, the number one resource is critical its food. Um, food in and, and the country is going to be facing a lot of shortages when it comes to food. And while in the beginning of the crisis, food was um, was coming in quite readily um, from all over Europe, um, some of those loads have slowed down. And we really encourage that people continue to do that. The second um, is really uh, simple medical aid and and, um, and and medicines that people take on a regular basis that they haven't had access to for the last 30 to 40 days. And, um, and those are critical. So we've teamed up with a lot of clinics where people are submitting their needs and what medicines they need. And we receive those lists um, from the clinics. And we work really hard to make sure that we can fulfill those. And so far, um, we've done a great job of doing that.
1: Yeah, I met a woman in Lviv who only went to Lviv from where she was from, I think, in the, in the Kiev area, so she could get pharmaceuticals for her mom and ship them back, the post office still working here vlada galan thank you so much for your time thank you so much for the important work you do and if you would like to donate to the international ukrainian crisis fund please visit ukrainecrisisfund.com thanks vlada
8: thank you jake thank you
1: president biden is promising ukraine more heavy weaponry possibly also a visit from a high-level member of his administration how else could the u.s help that's next Turning to our politics lead as Russian forces prepare to launch a massive offensive in eastern Ukraine, the United States and its allies are unveiling a new military package for Ukraine, one that includes more sophisticated and heavier duty weaponry than previous shipments of aid. This comes as President Biden says he is weighing whether to send a senior member of his administration to Ukraine as a demonstration of support. CNN's Kaitlin Collins joins us now live from the White House. Kaitlin, uh, what are you learning about whom the Biden administration might send here to Kiev, Ukraine?
9: Well, it's not going to be President Biden or Vice President Harris anytime soon, based on what we've heard so far. But they are having talks inside about sending a senior official inside the Biden administration to Ukraine as a show of support. And, Jake, some of the names that have been thrown out there to me have been Defense Secretary Austin, Secretary of State Blinken, maybe one of those two, though it doesn't seem close to being decided yet. But this came up really because you saw the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, go to Kiev over the weekend. He made this surprise visit. It took a lot to get him there. He had to travel by car by helicopter. He was on a train for several hours because, of course, you can't just fly into uh, Ukraine, into Kiev, like a head of state normally would. And so that has prompted these conversations inside the White House about maybe sending a member of their own delegations there to go and visit as a show of support. But President Biden said today they're still making that decision. And Jake, based on what we've heard privately, it doesn't sound clear that they've decided who would be going or whether or not that trip is actually going to materialize.
1: The Biden administration says that they're expanding their intelligence sharing with Ukraine. What, what does that mean?
9: Yeah, so right now what you've heard from Western officials is that they do believe that Russia is preparing to launch this major ground offensive in Eastern Ukraine. They've moved away from these attempts to try to capture the capital of Kyiv and other major cities, and instead they're focusing on this Eastern region. And so that has prompted two things from the White House, one, which is changing the type of weapons that they're sending to Ukraine to include much heavier duty ones in this latest package. That you were just talking about, but also they're changing the way that they're sharing intelligence with the Ukrainians, something that they've been doing since the beginning of this war, something that Republicans have said they don't believe they're doing enough of, but officials have confirmed that they are expanding the intelligence they're sharing, the kind of intelligence they're sharing, specifically about Russian forces in the region, in hopes of helping the Ukrainians in this way. And so they're basically saying, simply put, Jake, they're making it easier to share intelligence with the Ukrainians on the Russians so it can help them as they prepare for what they expect to be a major ground offensive.
1: All right, Kaylin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. We are also following important news on the COVID front with new encouraging data. For parents with young children, stay with us. In our health lead, there is new data out today showing promising results of a third shot for kids. Pfizer and BioNTech say a study of children 5 to 11 years old shows a high immune response from a booster shot, which helps to fight off the Omicron variant. Companies said they will be sending this data to the FDA and requesting emergency use authorization to deliver that third shot to this age group in the coming days. Here to help us understand what this means for families is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, good to see you. So you've dug into this new data. Tell us what it shows.
10: So what they did in this case, Jake, uh, six months after these children received the first two shots, uh, they gave them this booster. Now, this is a third of the dose of what adults get. It's 10 micrograms. And what they were looking for were, were three things. How well do they tolerate this, this third dose? How safe is it? And does it create antibodies? Does it, how many more antibodies does it create? And it's a relatively small study, but let me show you what they found here. First of all, with regard to the antibodies, a significant increase overall, 36-fold increase in neutralizing antibodies against Omicron specifically. So obviously this is the, the virus that's circulating the most. Well-tolerated, no new safety signals. And as you point out, They're now going to take this to the FDA to see if this should be uh, authorized under emergency use. This is, you know, 12 and older uh, in this country all already have emergency use authorization for a booster. So this would be basically adding or expanding the age group for boosters,
1: Jake. So how important could that booster shot be to that age group?
10: Well, you know, I mean, I think that it's pretty clear that, that kids aren't getting as sick from this. They're, they're not uh, being as hospitalized or, or at risk of dying uh, from COVID. But if you look at Omicron compared to other variants, young kids uh, were oftentimes more affected by this. So it could potentially be, uh, be a significant deal. We also know that the, the, vir- the uh, vaccine efficacy sort of did wane pretty significantly against Omicron. So if you look back at mid-December, for example, the effectiveness overall around 68%, that's against infection, Okay, that's just against getting infected. And then it really just just dropped off to 12% by late January. Having said that, the protection, again, against getting severely ill uh, still seemed to hold up pretty well. Kids are at low risk of that anyway, so, and, and the protection held up pretty well. We'll see what the FDA says, Jake, but I think, you know, there may be this thing where, you know, kids who are particularly high risk because of pre-existing conditions, uh, they may be a, a better candidate for this. We'll also see what the numbers look like in terms of infection spread at the time that this is possibly authorized.
1: Sanjay, we heard from the White House COVID response coordinator, Dr. Oshish Jha, this morning. He expressed caution over the Omicron subvariants. Take a listen.
10: BA2 is much more contagious than BA1 the original Omicron variant. Our vaccines still work, not any more severe, uh, but it is spreading across our country. And so we want to watch it carefully and monitor where it goes.
1: I'm hoping it does not lead to a major surge in infections. Do you share his concerns?
10: Well, I mean, th- there's no question this is a really contagious virus. I think the issue is that a lot of people have sort of sort of adopted this stance that it's preordained that I'm going to get this and I think that that, that's not necessarily a good stance to have. I mean, there's still lots of unknowns about this virus. Even if people don't get super sick, could they develop long-term symptoms? As you know, Jacob, some studies have shown 30% of people develop long COVID, regardless of how severe their symptoms were in the first place. The other big question mark is you got about, you know, two-thirds of the country vaccinated. A lot of people have had COVID, But how well does your immunity work if you had Delta, for example, in the past? How protected are you against this new Omicron subvariant? We don't really know the answer to that. Point is, there could be a lot of people who are still vulnerable. If if we had really good, solid, uh, consistent immunity, I think it would be less of a concern. But I think because of the contagiousness of this virus, there may be a lot of people who are vulnerable, may not realize it, and could potentially be at greater risk.
1: Yeah, we're still losing in the U.S. 500 people or so every day because of this virus. Sanjay, quickly, if you're living in an area of high transmission, do people need to consider going back to wearing masks indoors? Uh,
10: You know, I, I hate to be the guy to say yes to that because nobody wants to do that. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of virus out there, Jake. And still, to your point, I'll just put up the numbers quickly I mean, you know, we've sort of plateaued and and upticked a bit now in terms of cases, 38,000, close to 40,000, 15,000 people still in the hospital and close to 500 people dying. So, you know, Jake, I mean, I still carry my mask around. If I'm going to be in a building where I'm not confident that everyone around me is vaccinated, I wear a mask. If everyone around me is vaccinated, less of a concern. But, um, you know, I think for the time being, we're not in that endemic phase as of yet, Jake.
1: All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, good to see you as always. Thanks so much.: yeah, thank you. A new heavy round of arms heading to the Ukraine from the U.S. Will that be enough? We're going to talk to the Pentagon spokesman. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome back to this special broadcast of the lead. We're live from Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper, and I'm looking out on the capital city of Kiev on day 50 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. We begin this hour with a major blow to the Russian military. The pride of Russia's naval fleet, the Moskva, has sunk. According to Russian state media, Ukraine claimed that they struck the vessel with a cruise missile. Russia blames the damage on an accidental fire. U.S. officials said they cannot confirm at this point exactly what happened. But either way, this is a major loss for Vladimir Putin. The Moskva has sunk. You might remember... This is the same ship involved in that famous exchange at Snake Island in February when a Ukrainian soldier said, quote, Russian warship, go F yourself. Well, apparently that's what happened. There's even been an official Ukrainian stamp seen here commemorating this message, serving as a rallying cry for defiant Ukrainians. Still, there are also more signs that a Russian attack on eastern Ukraine is imminent. A senior Pentagon official telling CNN the first Russian troops that left the north have begun appearing in the southeast, the Donbass region. And the French military spokesman said the expected large-scale offensive could start, he said, in the coming days. Now the Biden administration is expanding its intelligence sharing with Ukraine, they say, so they can send information on Russia's activities in that specific region more quickly. Finally, a grim milestone. Fifty days since Russia started this war, and we still do not have a realistic number, of just how many innocent Ukrainian civilians have been brutally killed. What we're left with are wildly undercounted estimates from the United Nations that said 2,000 have been killed. Ukrainian officials, still in the thick of Russian bombardment, they throw up their hands. They say they have no way of knowing the degree of the tragedy as of now. So all that's real and definite and tangible right now are moments like this one. That's a Ukrainian mom discovering her son's lifeless body dumped in a shallow well after Russian forces left their residential town of Buzova, just 30 miles from here where I'm standing in Kiev. She is heard saying, my little son, she's hardly able to breathe because of all the sobbing. Or take a look at this family. They tried to take an evacuation boat to safety with nothing more than a backpack and important documents. Then Russian rockets came raining down turning the scene into a bloodbath and killing the 12-year-old on the right of your screen there, Vladimir Nestorenko. Vladimir idolized Michael Jordan. He dreamed of playing basketball. Then there was 8-year-old Elisa, who watched her grandfather get killed right in front of her eyes. Ukraine's first lady first flagged the story, and reports say the little girl's grandfather cradled her in his dying arms to protect her from the blast, and he gave his life serving as a human shield. Alisa was also gravely injured, and she, too, later died from injuries at a nearby hospital. This is what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. We're joined now by CNN's Fred Plaik. And Fred, Ukraine's endured seven weeks of war now, more than seven weeks. It appears there will be another big battle in the East. You spoke... Uh, with the Ukrainian National Security Advisor. What did he have to say? You're absolutely right, Jake. The uh, Ukrainians have absolutely
11: no illusions that this battle is going to be tough, it's going to be bloody. There's two things that I think really gave them a morale boost. One is, is that ship being hit, but it's also the security assistance that they're getting, especially from the United States and the fact that there's some heavy weapons among that security assistance. The Ukrainians are telling me they're already moving more forces towards the east right now, and we also saw that firsthand as well. As Vladimir Putin masses his troops in eastern Ukraine, the Ukrainians too are deploying more forces to try and stop Russia's offensive. These elite territorial defense soldiers gearing up to head east. We are absolutely prepared for this. We have both fighting spirit and fighting mood. We are patriots of our country and of course we will fight back the enemy. The soldier who goes by the name Vlad the Rifle tells me. And now Ukraine's forces saying they've struck the flagship of Putin's Black Sea Fleet, the guided missile cruiser Moskva. I spoke exclusively with Ukraine's national security advisor. Can you tell us what happened to the cruiser Moskva? It sank, he says jokingly. So far, Russia only acknowledges that the ship was damaged after a fire, and now Moscow claims it sank while being towed in a storm. The Moskva was involved in a now famous incident in a place called Snake Island when its crew told Ukrainian soldiers to surrender. This was the answer. The Moskva was still there near the Snake Island and was hit yesterday by two powerful Ukrainian-made missiles, he says. And then a warning to Putin. This is just the beginning, he says. There will be more than one Moskva. But the leadership in Kiev understands the next major battles will be different and possibly even more bloody as Russian tanks and artillery pour into the Donbas region. This horde has invaded our country, and they think we will watch them destroy us, he says. But of course, we will respond by all means we have. Thanks to our international partners, we have interesting tools. The U.S. and its allies have already provided Ukraine with billions of dollars worth of weapons and are now moving to give Kiev heavier arms to counter Vladimir Putin's tank battalions. The national security advisor says Ukraine needs all the firepower it can get. I would never say that the Russian army is weak, he says, given the amount of weapons thrown there, the number of tanks, armored personnel carriers, planes and helicopters. I would not say this is a weak army. I would say these are strong Ukrainian soldiers who fight back such a powerful army. The National Security Advisor also tells me for Ukraine, the end game is clear. There will be no Russian soldiers in this area, he says, neither in Crimea nor on the territory of Donetsk or Luhansk regions. This is our land. We do not need someone else. We are not going to give up. And that's also what the Territorial Defense Group in Kiev pledges, ready to bring its forces to Ukraine's east to confront the Russian army once again. So then you can tell the Ukrainians are under no illusions as to what they're up against, the firepower the Russians can bring and the brutality that they bring as well. But at the same time, you do see that there is that boost of morale. The Ukrainians believe with that security assistance, they might have a chance.
1: All right, Fred Blanken, thank you so much. With us now to talk about this Pentagon spokesman, retired admiral, uh, john kirby uh john thanks so much for joining us so yeah. uh, russia now says that its damaged warship Moskva sank in the black sea yeah. is there anything you can tell us to sort out the conflicting claims about what damaged it? the russians are saying it was just a fire on board and then a storm sank the ship uh yeah. the ukrainians say no no we shot it we, we shot it with a two neptune land to sea missiles um who is telling the truth here
12: well, we certainly uh, can't—we're uh, not in a position to, to to officially confirm independently what exactly led to the ships now sinking, uh, but we're also not in any position to refute the Ukrainian side of this. It's, it's certainly plausible and possible uh, that they, in fact, did hit this with a, a Neptune missile or maybe more. I mean, the Neptune has a range that would have certainly— been able to make it reach uh, the Moskva, which was about 60 to 65 miles uh, south of the coast uh, off Odessa. So certainly within the the realm of of, of possibility there. Uh, But clearly, as you said earlier, this is a big blow to the Black Sea fleet. Uh, This is a cruiser, very, very capable warship with almost 500 sailors on board uh, and a a key part of their efforts to execute some sort of naval dominance in in the Black Sea. So this is going to have an effect on their capabilities.
1: I can't even think of the last time a ship this big sank uh, in a military yeah. confrontation. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's happened since World War II, but I, nothing comes to mind. Um, can I ask, given the fact that even the Russians confirm uh, that there was an explosion on board, they say right. there was a fire and the fire hit ammunition they have, it's likely that Russian sailors were killed in this incident, yes? Yes.
12: I think you have to work on that assumption, Jake. I mean, almost 500 uh, sailors. I don't know how many they got off. We did see indications uh, that there were lifeboats and that some sailors got off uh, the ship. Uh, But if it was hit by a missile, even if it was just an internal explosion that cooked off ammunition, as the Russians are saying, you're likely going to have loss of life and casualties on board that ship.
1: Ukraine's military uh, says that its special operations forces destroyed a bridge as a Russian convoy was crossing near Kharkiv in the northeast of the country. Uh, For days, we've seen satellite pictures of these long Russian convoys heading for eastern Ukraine, heading for this Donbass region. Those seem like ripe targets. Um, Do the Ukrainians have to just sit and wait for this convoy to start attacking them?
12: No, and I don't think they will. I mean, you saw in the north uh, uh, near Kiev where there was that vaunted convoy we've been talking about for so many days. Uh, The reason it got stuck was because the Ukrainians hit it uh, right at the front of the column and then hit it throughout that that column of of vehicles. And and I won't get ahead of the Ukrainians or what they're going to do on the ground. But no, they don't have to sit and wait. They've got the capabilities available to them. It's just a matter of like uh, what their what their battle plan is. And again, I I don't want to speak for them. Uh, We haven't seen. Um, resupply or, or refit efforts uh, of, a, of a, a quantity like we saw in the north just yet. We are seeing a convoy of vehicles coming down uh, from the north, uh, from Russia, uh, down towards that t- town of Isium. Now, we still assess that that convoy is north of Isium and hasn't made a lot of progress, uh, but it's basically full of command and control elements, enablers, maybe some helicopter support. Clearly what the Russians are doing, are trying to sh- doing what we call shaping. They're trying to set the conditions for success in the Donbass for some future more offensive operations.
1: You're expecting a different kind of fighting. We all are in, in eastern Ukraine than we saw That's earlier right. around Kyiv. The, the, land, the land is freer of, uh, of woods. It's more clear. How will the new supplies of arms from the U.S., from other NATO con- countries, help with this fight that's coming?
12: We think that the terrain there, which is a little like Kansas, it's flat, it's open, like you described, Dick, uh, will lend itself for the Russians to use uh, mechanized forces in columns and open formations, artillery, short-range and even long-range fires. Those are the kinds of capabilities that you want to make sure the Ukrainians have as well. And so when you look at that new package the president authorized just yesterday, you'll see howitzers, 40,000 artillery rounds to go with it, a counter-artillery radar system, which will help the Ukrainians defend against Russian artillery strikes, uh, as well as UAVs and even coastal defense uh, vessels to help them in the Sea of Azov. So we're deliberately tailoring this package to try to meet the needs of the fight they have today because they are fighting in the Donbass today and the fight that we think is coming in the days and weeks to, to come ahead of them.
1: How soon can you get those howitzers and other weapons to the Ukrainians on the front lines where they need it?
12: We're working on that right now, Jake. We're, we're looking at where, the, where the, these things are and how fast we can get them there uh, from the time the president authorizes to the time we can get them into the Ukrainian hands has been, in some cases, as short as a week. Uh, and we know that the, the time is not our friend. We know the clock is ticking here. We're going to be working on this package just as fast as we were working on the last one. Uh, and I suspect that we'll start to have shipments flow here very, very, very soon.
1: Do you have to sneak them in? Are you worried that if the Russians see you providing these arms, they will consider those American uh, shipments to be... Legitimate military targets.
12: Well, they've already said that they would consider them legitimate targets. Uh, So what we're doing is uh, we're being very careful about uh, how these shipments are getting into Ukraine, using various routes uh, from different places and at different times, varying it appropriately. We're doing everything we can to protect the operational security of these shipments, getting them to Ukraine as fast as we can. And and look. Eight to 10 flights are flying into the region a day, not all from the United States, but from elsewhere, eight to 10. And usually there are multiple sets of vehicles uh, moving into Ukraine by the ground every single day from various different locations. That has not been interrupted yet. And we want to preserve our ability to keep that flow going. So again, we're being very, very careful. We have not seen any interdiction attempts by the Russians thus far.
1: Pentagon spokesman and retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, thanks so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up next, my conversation today with the chief prosecutor from the International Criminal Court. He discusses his plans to methodically review the evidence they are beginning to collect of Russia's horrific offenses, plus new claims of discrimination from Ukrainian refugees now just trying to find a new life after escaping Russia's war. Stay with us. We're live from Kyiv and our world lead, Russian state media claiming a victory in the besieged port city of Mariupol. This video allegedly shows more than 1,000 Ukrainian Marines surrendering to Russian forces. Ukraine is denying this report. CNN cannot verify if this is real or Kremlin propaganda. Still, Mariupol has been one of the hardest hit areas since the war broke out seven weeks ago. CNN's Ed Levandera spoke with one survivor who has tried her best to deliver aid and offer support to citizens in hiding while running for her life.
13: When the first bomb struck Mariupol, Katya Yerskaya thought her most effective weapon would be a gentle smile and the ability to calm terrified families. She lived in an underground shelter, coordinating relief supplies for the trapped civilians of this besieged city. So you're watching your city get bombed and destroyed. People are being killed. You decide not to leave, but to help
6: for animus its didn't allow even children to go out from the city.
13: Day by day, the video Katya captured showed life in Mariupol unraveling. She lost touch with the outside world. None of her family and friends outside the city knew if she was alive or dead. Life here was falling into an abyss.
6: It was like middle age. It was like
13: the Middle Ages. Yes. It's almost like you could feel yourself running out of time. There was only so much longer you could stay in Mariupol.
6: I thought I will never go from Mariupol until the end.
13: On March 16th, Katya evacuated. She recorded two short videos on her way out, just before seeing a family walking on the side of the road, a mother grandmother and two young girls
6: we had uh, two free places in our car and we saw this family and we decided to help them
13: at one of the russian military checkpoints they stopped in front of a soldier
6: and he show us go out and we began to turn on our car and after that he began to shoot
13: one of the bullets pierced the car over her head But in the back seat was 11-year-old Milena Urolova, shot in the face. The Russians, realizing their mistake, sent the girl to a hospital. Katya, now separated, traveled on without knowing if the young girl survived, until... CNN found Milena in the basement of a children's hospital in eastern Ukraine after surviving life-saving surgery. For Katya, the relief is overwhelmed by the horrors of what she witnessed.
6: I saw a lot of uh, dead people, a lot of common grace on the street, for example, in my yacht, and um, I um, started to believe uh, that they were crazy because they um, were like maniacs.
13: They were maniacs to you?
6: Yes. They, they're really, they really crazy, like Nazis in the Second World War.
13: After escaping, Katya remembered the videos she recorded before the Russians ravaged Mariupol. Ukrainians protesting outside the now famous theater that in a matter of weeks would be the site of one of the most grotesque bombings in this war. The theater still intact the city's buildings unscathed. She sees the peaceful faces of families and children. The video is hard to watch. Are these people alive or left in makeshift graves around the city? Katya Yerskaya doesn't know, and for her, there's only one way to deal with this haunting reality.
6: I decided that I will cry uh, only when the Ukrainian gets the victory.
13: And Jake, you know one of the hardest things for people like Katia to deal with is that there are still 180,000 people left in Mariupol and the regions around that city. She escaped several weeks ago. She said it was already so dangerous, uh, unimaginable to, to live in when the street the, the street fighting was going on. So hard for them to grasp just how much the situation there in that city has
1: deteriorated in the days since they've left. Jake. Adla Vandera and Mikoli of Ukraine, thank you so much. Earlier today in Kyiv, I spoke with the International Criminal Court Chief Prosecutor, Karim Khan. He is leading the war crimes investigation here in Ukraine. And after touring the northern towns of Bucha and Borodyanka, he said, quote, Ukraine is a crime scene. Prosecutor Khan, thanks so much for doing this. Appreciate it. So you have been going around the country. You've been to Bucha, you've been to Borodyanka. What have you seen? Have you seen anything that surprised you?
14: Unfortunately, uh, not. I think we have all been seeing the pictures and reading the reports um, regarding the devastation, the human cost, uh, both to property, but really most importantly to, uh, to civilians, uh, men, women, and children. And so it was an opportunity to see firsthand, um, to verify, to try to start a process
1: of collection. Putin is out there saying it's all fake, it's all a hoax. You're seeing it with your own eyes.
14: What we have to do, I think the job is to separate truth from falsehood. Uh, Truth always is said to be the first casualty of war. There's competing narratives. uh, There's um, allegations and counter-allegations. And I think this is why there's a role, an important role, for an independent prosecutor's office. We don't have a political agenda. We're not in favor of Ukraine and against Russia or uh, in favor of Russia against Ukraine. We're in favor of humanity.
1: And you're not in a position right now where you are asserting the Russian military is committing horrific acts, or the Russian military is committing war crimes, or, as President Biden said, uh, Putin is committing genocide. That's not your role right now. You are an investigator getting facts, and you're not ready right now to assign blame one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I I don't
14: have the luxury of a politician to uh, speak in generalities. Um, We have to have evidence for every proposition we put forward, and it requires deliberation, it requires, of course, some urgency, uh, to get to the truth, but uh, we're committed to that. But you know, the principle of Nuremberg, uh, the United States and Russia, uh, uh, as well as the other uh, victorious powers, established a principle in Nuremberg that was very eloquently put in, that crimes are not are committed by men, not abstract entities. So we're not looking at Russia or Ukraine, look at individuals. Individuals who have power, mostly men, uh, whether it's a rape or whether it's a gun or whether it's a mortar or whether it's a shell or whether it's a missile from an airplane, there are obligations. People cannot, under the laws of war, do what they want with impunity.
1: How is it possible to go from just holding a private or a sergeant responsible versus this is systemic, they were told to do this, and it goes up the ladder, and you hold colonels, generals, commanders, President Putin responsible. How does that work?
14: The important thing is, I think it's uh, nobody is above the law, nobody's beneath it, but whether you're a private or a captain, or a colonel, or a general, or a civilian superior. The basic principles apply to you. Nobody gets a jail out of free guard. Nobody gets a free pass. Every individual must act with responsibility in in their conduct. And there is this personal accountability. It's not a defence. Nuremberg established it. Superior orders is not a defence. It's not enough um, to uh, uh, attack a civilian object and attack uh, women and children.
1: So, the reason that the Nazis were able to be tried at Nuremberg is because they were defeated, right? They lost. It is likely that however this conflict ends, Putin will still be in power. Russia is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court, neither is the United States for that matter. So, how can we guarantee that there will be some sort of justice given the fact that Russia is not on board with the ICC and it's, in, it's likely that the Kremlin and all its leaders will still be standing when this conflict's over.
14: We can't be naive about things. We need to be realistic. But the first thing's first. Collect the evidence, preserve it, analyze it, You know, make determinations based on what it shows. And those determinations can be checked by judges. Now, in terms of the uh, surrender of individuals, uh, this is an issue we've seen before. Yes, you're quite right about uh, the Allied powers uh, after the Second World War but many arrest warrants were executed in the former Yugoslavia when hostilities were uh, going on. So it requires collective will. It requires political will. It requires this sense of responsibility not to um, you know, abdicate that responsibility over the next period. It may not be easy, but I do believe with collection, collective effort uh, the law can be vindicated, but time will tell. And I take a really pragmatic view. We have to, and I have to, as the prosecutor of the ICC, do my job. Uh, Judges then will, you know, do their jobs and and, uh, check and and verify and make determinations that we will respect. This growing realisation that a common front needs to be built based upon legality because it affects Ukraine, but it affects all parts of the world because of the rules-based system and the principles of public international law that have to be rendered much more meaningful not to judges in their gowns or advocates uh, in the courtroom, but to the men and women and children that you see on the streets and refugee camps that are completely innocent and that suffer horrendous crimes time and time and time again. And we tend to have not only short
1: memories, but also an absence of shame. Every year on International Holocaust Memorial Day, I read these statements from world leaders, never again, never again. And there's always a genocide going on, whether Myanmar uh, or any of the other places that you've mentioned. what do you say to somebody out there who says, it's all nonsense, they say never again, and then tens of thousands of Ukrainians get massacred, and the Western powers just sit back and, you know, they send some arms, but they don't really get involved.
14: I think it's uh, incredibly difficult, you're spot on. It's a matter of shame that what you say is true, but it is, at the same time it can't be hopeless, we can't give up hope because we have laws domestically and people commit uh, murders and a whole variety of uh, crimes. The issue should be collective will to impose these standards in practice. And it's about progress. Yes, the world is full of contradictions and hypocrisies and double standards, I accept that. But generally, if you look where we are today in terms of the relevance of international law and international criminal law for all its defects and shortcomings, I think objectively, We're in a better place than we were, you know, in the 1980s or the 1990s. And I think if we keep working, if we don't give up hope, but be realistic and try to improve the compliance with the law, um, we'll make progress. And utopia doesn't exist in practice. It's about trying to keep progressing in a way that is meaningful and we don't stop. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Sheikh.
1: An impossible task of moving people and supplies throughout a country under constant attack. How trains are playing a vital role in saving lives here in Ukraine. Stay with us. We're back live in Leave, Ukraine's capital city. Before Vladimir Putin gave the order and the bloody invasion commenced 50 days ago, this country was little more than a name for most Americans. It's actually a pretty large country. It's about the same size as Texas. From here to the front lines in eastern Ukraine or southeast to the besieged city of Mariupol, it's roughly 500 miles. It's a bit quicker to get to than driving from El Paso to San Antonio or from Dallas to Brownsville. Except here, fighting and Russian checkpoints can make roads impassable, obviously since the war began, flying's out of the question. So the safest way to get around in Ukraine, to get away from the Russians and the havoc they're they're wreaking, it's by train. Close to 6,000 war crimes being investigated, potentially tens of thousands massacred, and Russia repositioning for a new assault. These Ukrainians are not waiting for what's next.
9: A week ago, we were thinking and hoping that it would stop. It will
15: be calmer, but it didn't change.
1: Less than a week after Russia bombed a crowded railway platform in Kramatorsk, those lucky enough to evacuate on these trains believe the ride was worth the risk. With air travel now non-existent and unexploded bombs and Russian checkpoints on the roads, Trains remain the safest way to flee.
4: It's not only the question of shelling, but the question of safety, that some people may come and just take you away. We can't stay.
1: Baby Maxime and his mother Marina are from Zaporizhia, but plan to wait out the war in Germany. Outside the Main Lviv train station, volunteers at this booth answer questions and help coordinate transportation and safe housing in Germany. Poland, Lviv, and more. Where most want to go is back in time.
8: We want as soon as possible to continue living as before.
1: Vida and her husband are just two of nearly four million Ukrainians. The railway says it has evacuated since the Russian invasion began.
8: People say on the Internet that anything can happen, even here. So we hope it will be easy. We
4: left everything behind.
1: Thousands and thousands of Ukrainians fleeing their hometowns come here to the Lviv train station. Uh, they try to get accommodations. They can get food here from the World Central Kitchen. There's a fire uh, over there, a wood-burning stove heating up water. People have just come with whatever belongings they can take, and their loved ones just trying to get to someplace safe. Away from the crowds at a smaller train station nearby, the most fragile passengers have their own carefully coordinated welcome. Doctors Without Borders arranged this train. There were a few cars uh, with kids from an orphanage. And now, uh, in these remaining cars, there are 10 people, nine of them children, uh, almost all of them wounded in the attack on Kramatorsk. They are getting off the train uh, and getting into these ambulances. This was not the arrival they imagined when they came to the Kramatorsk railway station last Friday. but after Russians targeted the crowd on that platform, many of these passengers, these children, suffered shrapnel wounds so deep, surgery is required. Their train to Lviv is outfitted with medical equipment in each car, as well as a team of doctors and nurses. Dr. Stieg Wall-Ravens was the ER physician on board for the 24-hour journey, overseeing some complex injuries along the way.
5: So they had actually a pneumothorax, which is... Um air in between the lung and the chest um, was due to actually a penetrating
1: trauma of a blast. These are the kind of wounds that normally you see in, in, uh, normally one expects to see
0: in soldiers, not in children. You expect to see that in uh, war-struck areas where uh, civilians are also close to the firing line. Pretty,
1: pretty tough stuff to see kids hurt like that. Always remains tough, yes. He says his team has been going back and forth on these kinds of medical transports for 10 days. This group of some of Putin's youngest victims, safe for now, and headed for more care. Back at the main terminal, the trains keep chugging in and out and across the country, bringing Ukrainians from the besieged south and the east to Lviv, where they can have the small luxury of a moment to cry. Now, we were asked to not show you the orphans and to not show you the kids who were so critically wounded in the Kramatorsk train station attack, and we obviously honored those wishes, but I have to tell you, that was tough to see. In the U.S. today, finally, the new investigation into what many people suspect, are drivers being ripped off at the gas pump as oil companies cash in? Stay with us. In our Moneyly today, what appears to be a first of its kind, a new investigation launched by the New York Attorney General into possible gas price gouging. A source tells CNN the investigation is broad, examining the state's entire supply chain process from oil supply lines to the gas pump. Let's bring in CNN's Allison Kosick. Allison, word of this investigation comes as oil companies are reporting these eye popping profits.
15: Jake, you're right. Oil companies are raking in enormous profits as consumers face soaring gas prices. In 2021, ExxonMobil made $23 billion. Shell, $19 billion. Chevron and BP, tens of billions as well. Now New York Attorney General Letitia James is launching an investigation to find out whether the oil industry has been taking advantage of consumers in New York state by price gouging at the pump. This is a deep dive into the entire supply chain, from production to the pump. It's going to be covering all the steps before the product even gets to gas stations, so not only major oil companies that supply oil to the state, but this investigation is also going to look into refineries that turn crude into gasoline, as well as independent operators of pipelines and terminals, plus the manufacturers, distributors, shipping firms, and retailers. The investigation is a reflection of the anger about high gas prices as oil companies in 2021 made some of their biggest profits in years and are forecast this year to earn even more. The current average is $4.07 a gallon, which has come down since the record high of $4.33 last month. Uh, It is worth noting that Oil companies lost enormous amounts of money in 2020 when crude oil crashed below zero for the first time ever. The American Petroleum Institute says countless investigations have shown that changes in gasoline prices are based on market factors. But even President Biden recently called out the tendency for gas prices to go up like a rocket when oil spikes, but only to drop like a feather when crude crashes. At this point, Jake, it's not clear what, if any, there's any evidence that state authorities have of potential price gouging. Jake?
1: Mm. And Allison, Amazon. Turned heads today. They announced its first, their first ever fuel surcharge to sellers. That's not going to sit well with customers.
15: Yeah, especially because Amazon's fee hikes on sellers could translate into higher costs to consumers as those businesses look to pass along that expense. In a memo to CNN, Amazon said it's imposing the new fee uh, because inflation has worsened significantly in recent months. An Amazon spokesperson said the fee only applies to sellers that choose to use Amazon's fulfillment services, which includes storing, packing and shipping products. Uh, but this fee, Jake, to sellers comes after Amazon just hiked its prime membership fee, $20 to $139. The new fee on sellers, it begins two weeks, uh, in two weeks, on April 28th, when Amazon is also expected to release its earnings report for the first three months of this year. Jake?
1: All right, Allison Kozak and our money lead, thank you so much. Coming up next here from Ukraine, the refugee group that says they're not being treated like other Ukrainians who escaped war. They say they're being discriminated against. Stay with us. In our world lead, more than 4.7 million Ukrainians have been forced to flee the country since the beginning of Putin's brutal invasion 50 days ago. The majority of the refugees traveling to neighboring Poland. But as CNN's Kyung La reports for us now, Displaced members of the Roma community, that's Europe's largest ethnic minority, they say they're receiving different treatment than ethnic Ukrainians.
5: Since late February, when they fled Ukraine, this has been life for these refugees in Poland. You're just moving from shelter to shelter. Talk, talk. Yes, says Masha Horniak, who fled a town near Lviv, Ukraine, where her husband fights in the war. Korniak says her children have watched as other refugees moved out of shelters into Polish host homes and apartments. Is there a difference with how others are being treated compared to your family? A big difference, she says. The help goes to Ukrainians with clothes, food, even when it comes to our children. Roma people are treated like, I don't know what, she says. To be clear, these families are all Ukrainian. But they're not considered white. They're Roma, Europe's largest ethnic minority. Among the millions of Ukrainians fleeing the war, the European Commission estimates 100,000 are Roma. Most of them say Roma nonprofit groups are in Poland. What do you see happening here when it comes to Roma people? Uh, Big problem, big problem. People, Polish people, know uh, they help uh, this uh, gypsy. Raymond Sivak, who is also Roma, is a volunteer for a Roma relief group in Poland. On this day, he's going from shelter to shelter, picking up Roma families. Yes, this is racism. It's a very open racism. Joanna Talevich runs the group helping Roma refugees. Nobody wants to take them from different cities, from refugee shelters, from volunteers. Across Poland? Uh, Across Poland. Forget that you are able to rent an apartment for those people. It's impossible. It's impossible even if you have money. Talevich's group found three houses in Poland that they can rent for these exhausted families. Fatima Hordiva's daughter, Milana, fell asleep immediately once she was on the bus. How hard has all of this been on all of the children here? It was hard in the shelter, she says. Before they finally head to this house, the volunteers stop at another shelter. And pick up Oresha Ptua, who barely escaped Russian missiles in her suburb outside of Kiev. She has also been in shelters for the last month. With all your children and you're pregnant? Seven months pregnant, traveling with three-year-old twins and her eight-year-old. The Roma volunteers say Roma families are often larger, creating a different housing challenge in this crisis. But these Ukrainians, just like their fellow refugees, have husbands fighting in the war and children they're trying to protect. I thought that during the war, you know, during this terrible circumstances, we need to help all refugees. I never thought that we will have a deal with the races during the war, yeah? And it was naive, it was very, very naive. CNN has reached out to the European Commission and multiple levels of the Polish government. We did hear back from the local provincial office here in Warsaw that said it had not received any complaints from the Roma community, but that any complaints would be investigated. Now EU representatives have said that they visited Poland and other border countries in early March and that, quote, it did not witness any incidents of discrimination or racism. Kyungla, CNN, Warsaw, Poland.
1: And our thanks to Kyung La. After Kyung filed that report, CNN did hear back from the Polish Interior Ministry. They say that they are in, quote, constant contact with representatives of Roma organizations, unquote. A $43 billion offer Twitter might just refuse? That's next. And our tech lead, the richest man in the world, tells Twitter, take it or leave it. Elon Musk offering to buy the social media company for $43 billion in cash or $54.20 a share. This after Musk became Twitter's largest shareholder last week. Now, the takeover bid is about $9 more than the stock's current market price, though it is below its 52-week high. If this offer is not accepted, Musk says he will reconsider his position as a shareholder. Critics say Musk has not thought through the challenges of moderating content on Twitter, or how he would finance the hostile takeover. Musk says he wants this to be a free speech platform. I'll be back at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight with more live from Kiev and from our reporters on the front lines of this bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with Jim Acosta in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level.